Hello, I'm Alex Zane, film journalist, movie fan and your host for a trip to the movies. I'm currently in our podcast studio a mile beneath the streets of London and in a moment, my guest this week, the wonderful Andy Osho, will be talking about her second novel, Tough Crowd, and taking us on her perfect night out at the cinema. Thank you for downloading the podcast. This episode is brought to you by Odeon. From as little as £2.50, your little one's imaginations can run wild this summer because every day during the school holidays, Odeon will be showing the most magical fairy tales and animated films ever made so the whole family can enjoy that cinematic feeling of sinking into the softest seats and being mesmerised by massive screens for less. To immerse your family in an unforgettable adventure from £2.50, look out for Odeon Kids tickets on their website or app. You see, they make movies and the school holidays better. And if you'd like a pair of free tickets to head to your nearest Odeon, stick around after the interview and I'll tell you how you can get your hands on a pair. Also, if you'd like to watch today's interview in glorious Technicolor, do head over to our YouTube channel and please, while you're there, hit the subscribe button and help us grow the pod into a giant temple of film. For all the latest updates and to get in touch, you'll find us at Trip to Movies Pod. That's at Trip to Movies Pod on all social media. Right then, time to introduce today's guest, who I interviewed only yesterday in our studio in Soho. So if you're ready, let's do this. Hello and welcome to A Trip to the Movies, where each week a special guest takes us on their perfect night out at the cinema. This week, we are joined by a brilliant actress and author. On screen, she starred in everything from the DC movie Shazam to the BBC's Line of Duty, from the incredible I May Destroy You to Netflix's hugely popular Sandman. She'll soon be seen in season two of BBC's Blue Lights and joining season four of Sex Education. She's also just released her second novel, Tough Crowd, to rave reviews. Here to tell us about all that and take us on her perfect night out at the movies, it's the brilliant Andy Osho. Andy, welcome to the show. So, novel number two, following up your acclaimed debut, Asking for a Friend, Tough Crowd. Tell us a little bit about what Tough Crowd is about. Okay, so it's about um, an aspiring comedian called Abby. And um, she really wants to play this massive gig called Showtime at the Athena. But she, you know, she can't even get paid gigs. And um, she's also like a sort of larger than life character. Her mum is always telling her, everyone basically is always telling her she's too much. But then she meets this guy called Will, who just loves her the way she is. But he comes as a package deal with two kids from a previous relationship. And so really the journey for Abby is like, she because she thinks, oh, I'll just throw a whole load of Abby at the situation and that will make the kids love me. <laughs> and of course it doesn't, it just goes horribly wrong. And so her journey is really like learning how to, um, instead of, you know, imposing herself on the kids is like figuring out what do they what do they need me to be? Who do they need me to be so that they can be, I guess, this or are they going to be this blended family? I mean, who knows? Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah good. Jeopardy. Don't give away the end. Yeah, no, right. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm sure it's a question you've been asked um, uh, before, but obviously there's the aspiring stand up element. And, and with your own history of stand up. Is it autobiographical or is it just drawing on experience? So it is, in terms of like um, Abby's emotional journey, it's definitely I'm drawing from my own life because like I've been out with people who've got kids from previous relationships. And so 
certain things come up, you know, emotionally. And I thought that would be really good to to put in a book. And hopefully, like people reading it who have been in a similar situation or are in a similar situation, they'll resonate with that. Um, because, you know, you feel things like jealousy sometimes, like you're jealous of the kids and it feels that's almost taboo. And, you know, putting it in a book, hopefully someone might read that and go, oh, thank God she said it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like so they can feel a bit of relief from reading about it. Uh, you, you, you said earlier you called it uh, the difficult second album. Yeah. How how did it compare to writing Asking for a Friend? Because obviously I, I'm imagining the idea of completing a first novel. It makes something that seemingly could be impossible, possible, feasible. Was it easy this time around? It was so that aspect of it, like knowing that someday you will finish it, <laughs> that bit was easy. Because honestly, I did think it did feel never ending when I was working on Asking for a Friend to the point where I even said, listen, so I said to my agent, do, let, can we talk about giving the advance back and like <laughs> me not doing this? But um, yeah, so, th so that aspect felt doable now. But I like to give myself some new challenge. And so instead of writing in the third person, I wrote in the first person, which doesn't sound like a massive shift. But for me... You know, it was everything because I'm now suddenly speaking as the character instead of this like narrator. And um, when I the first uh, section that I wrote, which is which is still in the book, is like her stand up. I was like, this is terrible. This isn't going to work. What am I doing? You know, what I mean, like I had so much doubt about it because not only was I now writing in the first person, but I was also now writing down stand up. Like stand up's never meant to be experienced, written down. It's to be performed. So. As much as I knew I would finish the book, I didn't know if I'd be able to do it to any kind of level that I would not be embarrassed about. How, how tricky was that? Because, I, I mean, I, you know, I'm not the most widely read person in the world, but I, I did try and rack my brains and think about any other time I'd seen actual stand-up yeah. routines written in a, a novel as, as kind of prose. Well, that's it. I mean, and it's like, not only am I writing stand-up, but she goes on a journey with her stand-up. So where she starts off is that she makes herself the butt of the joke with the thinking that, oh, if I make a joke about myself before others do, then, you know, that's a win. I did it at school. You know, it's going to work now. Realising that that's what she's doing and then really re-evaluating, like, what am I putting out into the world if I do this? So not only did I have the challenge of how do you write that in prose, but then how how do I like mark this journey of uh, you know her evolving stand up? It's like all right, Osho, like don't make it easy for yourself. <laughs> so, yeah, so there was, it was a bit of a challenge. And and what is uh, what is your writing process like? Because obviously we're going to talk about it. You are incredibly busy on screen. So when it comes to writing, when it came to writing tough crowd, are you are you snatching moments between scenes on set, or do you have to? dedicate a very specific time to actually writing the novel? Yeah, for the most part, I try not to mix and match because I want my headspace to be in, you know, if I'm acting, I want my headspace to be in that and in the character and stuff. But there have been times, like, especially for Deadline is looming, you know, where I've had to, you know, do a little bit of that. So I'd shot a, a show called Curfew mm -hmm. and uh, we were doing, it, Curfew was a lot of nights. And so I would get up at like midday, go to the gym, right until you know we were called to be on set which was usually about four o'clock so I'd managed to sneak in maybe an hour and a half two hours of writing and 
because of the nature of curfew, it's like very big set pieces and stuff like that. It didn't require that sort of like deep character delve part of my brain. It required just be able to do that scene 25 times or 30 times or whatever it is. And you know what I mean? It's a bit more technical. So I think I had the headspace to write. But, you know, with something like Blue Lights, for example, I wouldn't really be able to marry the two really. I mean, I, I love, I love this, uh, that, that famous, um, I think it's a, a Taika Waititi quote where he goes, uh, writing can be opening your laptop, staring at a blank page for eight hours and then closing your laptop. And that still counts as writing. A hundred percent. Because I mean, I did a little Instagram video about this the other day because I was really, I was just staring out the window yeah. and um, I was like, and then I sort of came back to myself and realised what I'd been doing in that time is thinking. I've been, you know, deliberating over a, a moment in, in a book that I was about to write. But it, if someone had walked in, they'd be like, she just doesn't do anything. <laughs> she claims she's a writer. And I just see her just staring at a, a squirrel on her fence. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, that, he's 100% right. Um, I mentioned all the, the, the screen work. You are busy. Um before we talk about some of the projects uh, you've been involved in and you've got coming up, um, I think I read that when you started out with the acting, uh, you said you had chronic imposter syndrome. Mm. What, what was what was that about? Why why did you feel like that? It was horrific, actually, looking back. But so basically, when I started, I was 29. I decided I was too old. It was too late for me to go to, to drama school. I didn't have the time. And... Um, yeah, so I thought I'd just go for it. I'll treat, I'll do loads of like little short courses here and there and workshops and things. And I'll treat everything I do as part of an apprenticeship. But the problem with that is that at that elemental stage, like pretty much everyone you're working with is fresh out of drama school. So everyone's talking about what they've learned. And, and I, I, I guess... The in, craft. Yeah, the craft, right. in hindsight, I think they were trying to sort of validate themselves. Mm. And uh, But what a great way to validate yourself is that you've been to a, a lauded institution that's known for the craft sort of thing. If you're surrounded by people like that and you're a little bit insecure anyway, a lot, um, <laughs> that can be really kind of... Not debilitating, but it really it took up a lot of my energy, like trying to maintain some facade of like, I, I, too, I too know what I'm doing. Um, and I, yeah, it was it was a lot. So learning on the job then, really. Yeah, yeah. But but I mean, because I think about it now and I think, oh, should I have gone to drama school? Where would I be if I hadn't? And Oh, sorry, if I had. And and I think I probably would have ended up in the same place, but I wouldn't have had all that sort of that emotional stress, like at the beginning of my career of just feeling like I wasn't good enough. I didn't belong. I should have gone to drama school. I'm not as good as everybody else I'm working with. You know what I mean? Like all those thoughts. I can imagine. Uh, I, I, well, I am imagining it. it it's gone now because to, to look across your acting CV from the last few years, whoa, there's some big old <laughs> shows. Uh, Line of Duty, the DC movie Shazam. Netflix as the Sandman, uh, season two of Good Omens, I May Destroy You. Uh, you've got Sex Education season four coming up. How much are you enjoying your career on screen at the moment? Um, yeah, I've been, I feel very lucky with everything that's happened. I think, you know, going from stand up, because when I was really clear, right, that's me done with stand up, at least for now, anyways, like there, had, there, there was a period of almost like recalibrating casting directors' view of me. Mm. 
And in some cases, even just introducing myself to them. I always thought of myself as an actor as well. But a lot of people are like, oh, isn't she the stand up? Or I've never I've never heard of her, which was like even tougher because I'm just like, I've, I've been here, girl. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? We out here trying. Um, so, you know, having to. Uh, and so I didn't work for I didn't get acting jobs for a little while sort of thing. But my agent. Um, it's very good at sort of believing in me even when I don't. She was just like, listen, I know how this is going to play out. You just got to be patient, but we are going to break through. Someone is going to, someone's going to break. <laughs> I'm going to give you a job and it's going to be awesome. And um, so I got this, I was in LA because I moved to LA for a little while, a long while actually, six years. And I was, um, I got this audition through and it was to play a step-grandmother to Papa Essiedu. Mm. And I was like, we're not the same age, but like we're quite, that doesn't make any sense to me. But anyway, so I was reading it with my friend and I said, I'm not even going to get this. In between takes, I was literally like, oh, what is the point of this? What is the point of this audition? And sent the tape off. And that was Kiri. So and I got that. And, you know, Kiri went on to be like one of Channel 4's biggest uh, sort of dramas and all those. And I think that sort of recalibrated people's minds like in terms of casting directors, because a lot of people were like, what's that? Because I looked so different in it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was part of that, you know, breaking in, having people realise that I could do dramatic roles and that my acting had improved. I did a lot of really great training out in the States, which just particularly L.A., there's a lot of great coaches and stuff like that out there. But, yeah, there was a, there was a period of just like, I don't know if this is going to work out. I don't know if I've done the right thing, but I, I've always had this thing of like, I can't go back. Like, I can't retreat. Do you know yeah. what I mean? I just the only way out is through. Yeah. Yeah, and, um, and and well, I mean, again, it, it's paid off. A show that um, is hugely popular. I mean, like five stars in the Guardian for the first season. Blue lights. Um, it's back for a second season. Yeah. Um, tell me what it's like. First of all, being involved in that, and 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 it getting such a huge reception, and and then returning for a second season. Well, yeah. I mean, I think the big thing is that now. Now, the way that things are written. Um, it's not a given that just because you were in the first season of something, you're going to be in the next or or even that you're going to survive <laughs> the season. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I think that's brilliant in a way because audiences have got very savvy. And so to be able to pull those punches like that is, is, is really great. But from an actor's point of view, you just think, great, I'm in a show and I'm a regular. I'm not a regular anymore. I'm dead now. <laughs> so, so like to be able to be in a show that was so well received and, and people really kind of got blue lights. Yeah. I think they really took it to their hearts because I think the show has a lot of heart and it's very grounded and in a in a world of shows that are quite heightened, and that's great too. I think audiences really appreciated kind of like a new a new take on the whole police drama thing. Um, and then personally, for me to be able to come back for a second season is brilliant. Like because it was such a great show, and I love my character. I love what they've done with her. Um, and you know, I have a moment. You know, at the end of season one, which. I mean, I don't know. People must have watched it by now. And if, if they're going to watch it, they would have watched it. Yeah, so where my husband dies and everyone says to me, like, that wants to talk about Blue Lights. They talk about that moment. And I really feel like that was only possible because of A, how it was written, but also how brilliantly Richard Dormer had created the character of Jerry that people just couldn't couldn't believe that they would do something like that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that when I have that moment, that's all because of the work that he's done with the character of Jerry that people are like, no, 
I'm not having it. I've had people literally in tears as they're talking to me about, you know, that yeah. moment. And then that gets me going because I go right back there to because obviously you do your prep and all the rest yeah. of it. I'm just like, please don't talk about my dead husband. I can't. <laughs> Uh, this one's just for me. Um, you did uh, you did appear in a movie uh, next to a man who I'm kind of in love with, Kerry Elwes. Um, oh. <laughs> did, uh, what, what was it like? Was he nice? I, I, I just love him for he, the Princess Bride. Uh, he is as lovely as he seems. He's yeah. just, he's the sweetest guy. And, you know, every now and again, he'll like drop me a text, go, saw you in blue lights, awesome work, or something like that. He's so lovely. Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah. Good to hear. That one was just for me as a big Kerry cool. Elwes fan. <laughs> uh, right, Andy, it's time to leave this reality and head to our virtual cinema in our dimension of pure film you are our guide we are your audience let's go on a trip to the movies so we push open the doors to our temple of film and find ourselves in the foyer there's an excited buzz as there always is in a cinema foyer the hum of anticipation it's your perfect cinema trip Andy who have you picked living or dead to go with you Okay, so this is a tricky one because I don't want anybody there. You don't want anybody. I don't <laughs> because I love going to the movies on my own. I like is that weird? Um I think there was a stigma about it for a while. I think certain people were like, well, you know, like, oh, really? On your own? Like, so for some people, it is purely something they do with friends or a partner. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I think we should reclaim it because I like going on my own as well. Yeah, I think it's a, like a pure experience. It's like when someone comes with me, invariably, at some point during the cinema trip, I do want to say, will you shut the fuck up? <laughs> And I love everybody that I would want to go to the cinema with. And I don't want to say those words to them out loud. Yeah. But yeah. can you just quit talking? <laughs> I went to see um, Gravity. Oh, yeah. And uh, with a friend who I love very much. And Gravity is a very quiet film anyways. And then, you know, the bit where... Um, you know, George Clooney does that very heroic thing and he's off uh, floating in space and then he's back inside the thing. Yep. My mate just went, in the silence of the cinema, he went, he's not really there. <laughs> ah, can you shut the fuck up? <laughs> oh, so, man. yeah, so, but he's not the reason I want to go on my own to cinema. Um, all right, but if I have to have somebody... Go on, let's, let's pick someone, yeah. Okay, then I'm going to take Bob Zemeckis. Robert Zemeckis. Yeah. Bob Zemeckis. Okay, so the the director of Back to the Future, Forrest Gump, yeah. uh, the Polar Express. Is there? <laughs> All right. <laughs> no, not not for that reason. Is is there a reason that you're taking Robert Zemeckis? Um, because he directed some of my favourite films, Contact mm. as well, um, Back to the Future, Castaway, and specifically, I might like to have a conversation with him about Castaway. Go on. Well, here's the thing. So I have done this personal development course, right? And they use Castaway to as an uh, as a way of um, demonstrating the development or the almost transcending of like the human condition, in the sense that bear with me. So when the when the um, plane crashes. Basically, he goes from almost being reborn because the water is almost like the um, amnio ambio what's amnio it called? amniotic fluid. Yeah, yeah amniotic yeah, yeah, fluid. Yeah, yeah. The life raft is like a, a bosom. The, the cable or whatever that gets wrapped around him is the umbilical cord. You know, and he goes through all these stages to the point where he wants to commit the suicide. He looks down and you see that archipelago of like islands and you realize they're all connected under the water. Met people are all like ultimately connected, you know. And then he has that moment on the the um on the raft that he builds and he realizes he has control over nothing so he lets go 
And he goes through this entire, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like sp- basically a spiritual journey through his entire expression of humanity out the other side. I would love to talk to him about that. Like, like how, tell me, point out the bits that I've missed or I've not seen in that journey that you've, because he even has a temper tantrum. He has a terrible twos mm-hmm. when he can't open the uh, coconut mm-hmm. and things like that. Do you know what I mean? So I think that would be really fascinating to actually talk to the director about, about that. And you think you think um, you think all that was there in Robert Zemeckis's interpretation of like the script and what he brought to the screen? You don't you don't think that is a personal development course going? Oh, hang on a second here. We can uh, we can add this to what exists. In yeah, there, there's a possibility of that, but there's so many elements that it would be really. I mean. <sighs> If it was like one or two things, I could go, yeah, fair play. I could see how that's an interpretation. But I think the director intended it mm. because, yeah, just because it's so... And, and that's what... It's, I mean, the guy's name is Chuck Nolan, like, see no land. So, do you know what I mean? Like, so there's yeah. there's a lot of thought in it. Yeah. Okay. That's, is that getting a tick? You're writing something to... <laughs> did, I, did I get that right? I've got some tick. Uh, well done. That is the correct answer. Uh, <laughs> no, that's fascinating. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to read... I'll, I'll be completely clear with you. I've watched that movie and gone, man on island yeah. tries to survive and get home. That's but, it. That's it. A lot of drama. Yeah. A brilliant moment with Wilson, which broke my heart and still yeah. does every time I watch it. But I'd never seen any of that in it. Well, the relationship with Wilson is interesting because essentially he, you know, he creates an image that he interprets as a face, mm. you know, by putting his, his sort of bloodied hand on the ball and he interprets it as a face. And that's what we do with people. We're not really dealing with the person as they are. We're dealing with them based on our interpretation of them because we don't know somebody. We know the version of them that they give us and that we're kind of imposing on them. So that's another, you could say that's interpretation, like, you know, looking at the film and interpreting in that way, you could say maybe that's what they were getting at. And that's the question that I would ask him as we were walking through the foyer. I love it. I love it. So it's you at Robert Zemeckis. Uh, now, Andy, there's a clock on the wall in the foyer. It reads a specific time. What time of day have we gone to the cinema? We have gone in the evening. It's kind of, it's 6.37, something like that. So uh, even though I like the cinema to be ideally empty. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Including the person that's come with me. They're not there either. No, but if if, if it has to be like seven o'clock, like early in the week. So uh, Monday or Tuesday, maybe Wednesday, pushing it now. So you like to come out when it's dark outside. You don't like coming out of the cinema when it's still light. No, I think that's, no, I don't think I would like that very much. I feel like I, I, I have that thing of like guilt of not making the most of the day. So being in the cinema feels like very decadent. Even if it was research, yeah, or, could, or I could claim it was research, I couldn't. I don't think I could do that. I'm the same. It feels weird. It feels even though, even if it's work, it yeah. still has to be work in the sort of social hours of the evening. Yeah, yeah. All right, seven p.m. Great. Now you book the tickets for us. Uh-huh. Trip. Thank you very much. No problem. And um, where in the auditorium are we going to be sitting? Middle of the middle, baby. Middle of the middle, straight. That's it. Absolutely. We're not messing around. We're not messing around. I'll book that. Even though I know the cinema's going to be empty, I'll book it. I don't even care. When I was at college, I went to this, I went to Ravensbourne, which is a TV design, blah, 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 type of college. And so I remember really clearly the lecturer saying that the optimum viewing distance from a screen is, I think he said three times the diagonal. So it doesn't matter whether it's a watch 
three times the diagonal or four times the diagonal is the optimum viewing distance. And so, do you know what I mean? That's why yeah. cinemas are laid out the way that they are, why we sit a certain distance from our TV screen. You don't want to be up close, but you don't want to be too far back. So I guess so it occupies a particular um, ratio of your your vision mm-hmm. sort of thing. So yeah, I think middle of the middle is is prime. I mean, we middle of the middle is the most popular answer to that question. However, no one in the history of the show has ever brought science to that. <laughs> right. you, you have scientifically proven that it is the best place. Right. Thanks, Fantastic. John Lisney. That was my lecturer. Um, uh, yeah, because I went to see... Uh, a little sort of a qu- quantitative um, sort of anecdote about it. I went to see Woman King and I was mm. two rows from the front because I, I hadn't been able to book my tickets. And so ahead of time, so I was two rows from the front and I came away just going, that was all right. It was just quite a good movie. It's a bit, I didn't, I felt like they needed to make more of certain moments, blah, blah, blah. I was talking like that about it. And then I happened to be able to get tickets again. I went to a nice screening at BAFTA, which was very fancy. And I was middle of the middle. Totally different experience. I was in pieces at the end of the film, like, oh my God, what did they just do to me? So where you sit can really make a huge difference, not just in terms of your enjoyment, but also your understanding of the film as well. Because if you're if you're missing stuff that's way over the other corner of the screen, like that might be really significant detail. It's happening right now uh, with me with Oppenheimer. I saw it, you know, as intended mm-hmm. on an IMAX screen. <laughs> on uh, a watch, on a... <laughs> just as Nolan wanted. <laughs> on the back of the plane seat. Um, and, uh, and I've met people who've sort of come away from it having just watched it, not in like a, a bad cinema, but just in a regular cinema. And the experience has been very different really? just because of how overpowering it is in IMAX. It, it does feel like an immersive experience that I don't yeah. think can be achieved elsewhere. Ah, that's interesting because I haven't seen it yet, so I'll bear that in mind. Okay, okay. so you're not yet a Barbenheimer. I'm a Barbie. Right, right. I'm not an uh, Oppenheimer. (laughs) There's no way of... (laughs) No, anyway, I haven't seen it, basically. Can you imagine? (laughs) Because Barbie was created while Oppenheimer was still alive. Do you think he ever sort of looked at that doll and went, one day? (laughs) You and me. (laughs) Uh, Okay, the final thing we need before we leave the foyer. Oh, the air is full of wonderful smells. All manner of snacks and food stuff that are available various counters. What? You're shaking your head. Are you choosing? You're shaking your head Put to eat. Put it in the bin. Put it all in the bin. Why, I ask myself, can't these foods be quiet foods? Right. Mm? Mm. Why can't they serve soup? <laughs> <laughs> a little a little cup of soup in the cinema. Cinema soup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cinemoop. No, it doesn't work. No, yeah. I tried as well. I did okay, a little good. in my head. Couldn't, good. couldn't do that. Um, oh, yeah. I just, I don't love that. I don't. I, it, I ha- well, actually, I'm ambivalent about it because sometimes I quite like that sound of the. You actually the start. like it? Yeah, it's sort of reassuring in a way. Okay. Maybe it's like a nostalgic thing or something at the start of a movie and how it sort of gradually gets quieter as the movie goes on. And I'll, I will eat popcorn, I guess, during like an action film or something like that, which I very rarely go and see. But generally, I'm just like, no, I, no. I don't need you concessions. No, so you, I mean, you're writing off nachos. You're writing off nachos. <laughs> I need the smell alone. Cinema nachos, not real nachos, right, obviously, yep. which is a different. Is it a food group? Really ah, even? Is it food? Is it uh, food? Yeah, is it even uh, food? Yeah. Cinema nachos, cinema hot dogs. Why, know, Lord? Yeah, I guess uh, people are on either, like there, there is no middle ground. It's black or white. It's literally, uh, you either love those things and you just buy into the going, 
I know this isn't real food, but I'm going to do it. Or yeah, like, I like, guess like like you and I right now, it's like just no. Why would you? Why would you? I do, I don't even want your drinks. <laughs> I don't even want your uh, you know gallon of Coca Cola for eighteen pounds. I don't want it. So you were going in nothing. Nothing. I literally I walk from the the local cinema near me. Mm. I walk straight in. I get. I get my ticket and I go to the guy, <laughs> cut this in half, please, and let me into your movie bit. Fine. Great. Absolutely nothing. I mean, if you were getting popcorn, though, just for just just to tick this box, sweet or salted? Salt and sweet. Both. Mix that bitch up. Mix it up. Yep. Got it. Mixed popcorn. I'm going to put you down for a mixed popcorn. You don't have to eat it. You can just put it on I just the... chuck it on the floor. I mean, that's where it ends up anyway, isn't it? <laughs> All right, let's leave the foyer and walk down the corridor towards the auditorium. Now, posters along the cinema wall are going to depict some of your most important movie memories. Mm. And the first poster we're going to put up in this corridor depicts your fondest movie memory. I'm going to say, can I just group some experiences together? Yeah, I think so. Um... It's either like dis like going to see Disney films as a kid, mm. because that was I, I when I was going to see these movies, it would have been you know the old intermission and all that featurette, and it was just oh, I was just so transported. The Rescuers is what keeps coming to my mind of yeah. seeing yeah, yeah seeing the Rescuers in the cinema. And like we would all, you know, we'd all go. It was not a, um, uh, you know, because I've got two older brothers. It wasn't they used to go to the cinema and then me and my mum. We all went as a family. And uh, I remember going to see Annie. I'm not sure if this will count as a fond memory. I loved seeing the movie. I was very transported by the whole experience and all the rest of it. But I remember getting in the car to go home and crying and not understanding why I was crying because I wasn't sad. And as a, I don't know how old I was, maybe eight or something, I was just so confused. Why are there tears when <laughs> I am happy yep. <laughs> about what just happened? To, you know what I mean? I was so confused. And I remember not wanting anyone to know. And I was lucky enough to get the outside seat. I wasn't in the middle, even though I'm the youngest. And um, yeah, looking out the window, I didn't want anyone to see that I was crying because I, I couldn't understand why. I think that was the first time I was actually moved by a film. And uh, do, do you cry now in the cinema? Because I, oh, I, yeah. I, I cry in the dark. I'm a, I'm a bit like you, like on the sofa, even now, if there are people there and we're watching a sad film and it's me, it's trying to make me cry. I just can't have it. I feel I get very embarrassed about crying, but in a cinema, yeah. in the dark, when no one can see you. Yeah, I, oh, I think because cinema is, uh, experience is so immersive, um, I I do it gets me. It, I can get got at home. Probably it takes a little bit more. If people are there, I don't mind. I mean, I'm I'm the cry of the family anyway. So <laughs> you know what I mean. I mean, I don't want to be like. There's been times where I've been like almost breathless. That I find difficult. Like when I've been moved so much by something. Like Woman King left me like that. The second time I saw it, I was just like, Can you just not look at me right now? Because I'm struggling. <laughs> if I get to that point. I really have to just like, I just need to think about something else <laughs> so I can get it together. All right. So I think we'll put up a poster for Annie. Are you happy with that? Yeah. The, fir the yeah. first time that the power of cinema truly affected yeah, you. Yeah, I'll go with that, actually. I like that. Okay. The second poster we're going to put up. Uh, this depicts your worst movie memory. Oh, now I know exactly what it was. The Matrix 4. Right, so this is the Matrix Resurrections? I don't know or care what it was called. 
I'm still very cross about it. What what made you so angry about uh, the return to the world of the Matrix? Yeah. So I loved all three Matrix movies. I just thought they were just outstanding in in every way. And uh, you know, so I, so the thought that they were going to go back to this world, back to these characters that there was so many people were back on board, was just so thrilling to me. And the fact that even one of the Wachowski siblings was yeah. going to be involved. Yeah. Fantastic. And then it starts. And it's like, what is what is happening right now in front of my eyes? What is this? Now, I, see, it was a weird situation because like there were moments in the film that I think were strong and they were good and they were in keeping with the original canon. But there was there was so much of it that was, in, in my opinion, you know, quite weak. And oh, it was just so disappointing. I think when you've loved um, a franchise so much, when you know it, it gets failed by a later instalment, it's it's really it's really tough. Yeah, I I remember very little about it. But like you, obviously, I was very very excited. And then um, the only bit I remember is the return of the Merovingian. But he's sort of like he's like lost all his power. He's like living rough, and he's got oh. a couple of those guys. Remember the famous uh, foyer. A fight from the Matrix yes. Reloaded where yeah. it's like, and there's a couple of them back and I'm like oh my god it's them and look what's changed and yeah. that's it that is the only memory I have of that entire film wow I'd, I'd forgotten about that um, yeah I, gosh the, the, I think the thing that really made me realise this we're, we're, we're not in the same realm at mm. all and I don't know if it's a budgetary thing but the dojo you know the, the place where yes. they fight where, they, where you know the fight training when they um shot that sequence it was shot in a particular style that was probably quite expensive because it was quite long takes very expansive this one was very choppy and you could tell that either they hadn't learned the entire fight sequences or I, I don't know what it was but you could tell it wasn't the same cinematically it wasn't the same as what they'd done in the original movie and I just thought mm. I think you've hit the nail on the head there I think that's I think that's the thing um it just didn't look like a Matrix movie. It did. Mm. It didn't the, the visually. Not it, green enough. Not bloody <laughs> green enough. And they got greener. They got greener. Yes, and they greener did. As they went yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, great stuff. We're going to put up a poster for the Matrix Resurrections as your worst movie memory. Yeah. The third poster we're putting up is the last performance that brought you Andy to tears. Um. Okay. So, in terms of a, the last time I was in a cinema and I cried. Mm was Barbie. Really? Yeah. Which bit? So it was after, it was a combination of America Ferreira doing that incredible monologue about what it means to be a woman in the real world. And then that montage that they made of women in the real world. Yeah. I was just, even just thinking about it now, I could I could go. I could go. <laughs> you but, really are a crier. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. No, but I think Barbie's like, why? Like, surely the message is out now. Barbie is a really powerful film. It's, it may be based on intellectual property of a toy, but it's a really powerful film. I think as we record this, it just crossed a billion dollars yeah. at the worldwide box office. Just like Margot Robbie said. Yeah, yeah. She said it. But, um... Yeah, there was. Yeah, that was just a really poignant moment of just like as a woman in this world realizing, God damn it, it's hard. But you know what got me is when Barbie chose. I still want that, knowing how hard it is. Let America Ferrera's laid it down in quite a poetic way. Yep. But <laughs> so it makes it sound more, a little bit more appealing, maybe. But like, and she still chose it. It's like wow, that's deep. The thing, the place that I got jammed up with Barbie a little bit was Ken and like. 
what are we are we saying that a matriarchal world is better than a patriarchal one? Aren't they both as bad as each? Mm-hmm. You know, so I had to really have a think about about what where his position what his what his role in the movie is really saying about the state of the nation because I think any great movie has something to say about it all not just you know one one aspect of it so I'm still sort of considering okay all right what's that all about I mean it is it's an interesting thing which has been picked up on by a, a, a lot of articles the fact that is this actually Ken's movie is is this right. movie Barbie because yeah. it really feels like his journey and his story uh, for a lot of people yeah, I I still feel like it is Barbie's journey primarily, but it is in I think it's yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because someone uh, who had seen it before I did said exactly that. So it's a hundred percent is Ken's movie. Yeah, I'm like yeah. <laughs> I mean, he gets the big song and dance number at the end. <laughs> it's like, but that's not everything. <laughs> no, no. Well, yeah, I mean, but that's good, isn't it? That it it provokes this conversation and people having to think about like really what. Where what is his place in the film and whose story is it? Because previously, where the man the man was the protagonist and the woman was love interest and stuff like that, it was really clear where things stood and there was no conversation really. So it's nice that there's it's good, healthy that there's conversation around it. Um, so is that are we going to go with a, putting up a poster for Barbie? Is the last performance slash moment that brought you to tears, or is it is? Let's go with Barbie. I think I think yeah, Barbie's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah let's yeah. go with Barbie. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Barbie is the poster. Yep. All right. Barbie is our third poster and our final poster. Depicts your unpopular movie opinion. So my uh, unpopular movie opinion is that all three Matrix movies are fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. I said it, guys. Okay. I, I feel there is a conversation to be had here. Oh. So we're, we're ignoring Matrix Resurrection. So we're talking about the... So I said all three. Mm, yes, you did. Yeah, you yeah. Did. Yeah, because you don't even register that. I part. don't recognise it as a Matrix movie. No. Um, so I can, obviously, I, I, no problem with the Matrix. And I am a huge supporter of the Matrix Reloaded. Uh, the Matrix Revolutions. You, you're, you're saying Matrix Revolutions is a good movie. Wow. Yeah. Are you So, so... The second one is the one that you're okay because I would have thought the second one was the one that people would have had an issue with. I thought that um, the, the third one was a belter. No, 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 no. Wait, well, well, no, no, no. I mean, let's let's talk it through. Let's sure, sure, this. sure. The freeway chase. Yes. In, in the second one, kind of like it's it makes everything else okay because it's so impressive. Yeah. The third one is. <sighs> I don't know. What? Uh, okay, I really like seeing Zion. Maybe I could be the one person in the cinema that's into Zion, but I really loved like seeing that world, seeing how they were living. I loved the design of it and the earthiness of it and all that. But yeah, like combined with the sort of advanced, you know, uh, sort of technology that they had yeah. there as well. I yeah, and the character, you know, meeting that new raft of characters as well. I thought that was fantastic. Okay, I, I guess. Okay. So what do you think happens in the end of the Matrix Revolutions? Because I, I never really understood it. I felt like I'd been on this like eight-hour journey of these movies and then Neo sort of dies and like sort of almost Christ-like is transported somewhere. He and assimilates, I guess. The sun rises over the Matrix. So people are still in the Matrix? Yeah, I mean, I guess the architect's quite clear that the Matrix will always be, but it's like, what's the natural order going to be? What's the balance going to be? And so by getting rid of Smith, he brings back a natural balance, but there will be another Neo. Right. So 
Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah. Is, okay, that, yeah, yeah, is yeah. that acceptable? I guess that explains the one, the, 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 the movie that shall not be named. I guess <laughs> that's what that is. That is Resurrections is where it is the next iteration. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he says there's been, I, I think before Neo, he says something like there's been six yeah, yeah, yeah. before you or whatever. So it's like, you won't be the first, wow. <laughs> not the last. Okay. Um, um, oh, has it gone up? It's it's gone up. I was touching go. Yep. I wasn't. I was sure. I had another one in the pipe just in case. Oh, what was the other? Pulp Fiction is a problematic movie. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to go there, or do you want me to put up the Matrix posters? Let's just say I'm just going to say that Bonnie is black, mm-hmm. and I'll leave it at that. Okay. Yeah. So do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's like Bonnie's black. Right? right, his wife. So when Tarantino gives himself this role in the movie, where he says, "Is this dead N-word storage?" Yeah. His wife, Bonnie, who is fearful of coming home yeah. any minute now, mm-hmm. finding Marvin headless mm-hmm. in the back of the car, is black. Yeah, why would you do that? How does that work? Yeah. How does that work? Yeah. Talk us, walk us through the logic there, Tarantino. Yeah. So, so I feel like that's not that's just one example of the way that that time has not been kind to that film. I love the I love so much about it, and I was one of the people that would have gone out and watched it many many times, or watched it and listened to the soundtrack and all the rest of it. And I think it's brilliant how he created almost his own genre of mu- of movie. There's not many people that can get a style of movie named after them. That's a problem. Yeah. And um, it's not woke bullshit to just go, listen, he uses that word too much. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 I, I understand exactly what you're saying. It's a logic problem in, within the movie and the character. Well, like. it's not a logical, it's not illogical because the character could speak like that, mm. but why? Right. Do you know what I mean? Why would you have a character who's got a black, because I even looked up the actress. I was like, no. Then looked at, looked her up. It is a black actress who plays, because when I watched the movie, I thought, she's black, isn't she? Yeah. And he's saying this. <laughs> Yeah. It must be the coffee. Yeah. <laughs> it must be the great coffee he's drinking. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> um, so, yeah, anyway, but let's go with The Matrix. All right, all right. I mean, I love that pulp. <laughs> but that was just a little sidebar. But, yeah. Uh, that would be my in the pipe number two. All right. Uh, if I, yeah. We're, uh, we're making space for all three original Matrix posters. Yeah, they're the bangers wall. anyway, so it's all good. Right then. <laughs> right then. We've arrived at the last set of doors. Now, there is a queue oh, of people yeah. hoping to join you and Bob oh, Zemeckis what? in the auditorium. You can turn them away. It's completely up to you. Do you want a full auditorium or do you want it just you and Bob? <sighs> well, Bob might find it weird if I turn them away. <laughs> so they can come in. All right. The crowd go wild. They enter uh, the auditorium. Shush, shush, crowd. Yeah. Shh. Yeah. yeah. Now they know. You know what I would love is it, they can make as much noise as they want until the second the first trailer starts and then zip. Yeah. Zip it. Talk through the mobile phone advert. Oh, please. The, the holiday advert. I implore you to. Yeah. But the minute that trailer starts. Yeah. As soon as that Tui bullshit is finished. Let's get, <laughs> let's get to it. <laughs> yeah, I had, I went to see the bar. I, normally, I go to press screenings because I have to see movies early. But I went to see Barbie in an actual proper screening, and I, I'm just used to getting there on time. Thirty minutes of ants before the trailers even start. Oh, I was right. like, oh my gosh! But I was like, of course. Like when when do you advertisers have an audience who can't go mute? Yes, uh, it's like, we that's are trapped. so true. Trapped, but even I, I find the the actual um, the ads are quite sort of cinematic because obviously they know yeah. that the, where they're going to be playing, and so they they make them in that way. So I don't 
don't even mind watching the ads, to be honest. I was like, I think I'm going to buy a car. (laughs) (laughs) So this crowd needs to shut up from the minute the ads start. Uh, Well, I mean, ideally, yeah. (laughs) Okay, so the first thing we're going to play on the big screen for you and this packed auditorium, including Bob Zemeckis, is the movie you're most looking forward to seeing at the cinema. Well, see... This movie may never get made. In fact, it's unlikely to get made, but I would love it. Not Kevin Keegan style, really. I would love it if <laughs> they made World War Z 2. I mean, can we talk? Yeah, we can talk. Yeah. I, ha- I mean, it was on paper the most exciting sequel I'd ever heard of. So, oh. first of all, you love the original, then, yes. obviously. Yes, yes. Mm. That bit in there, the bit uh, um, in uh, Israel, I think it's Jerusalem. Yes. Uh, where the, the zombies are piling up against oh, the wall. Fantastic. Yeah. Phenomenal. And just, and the way that that shot and the tension that's building of like, you know, Brad Pitt's characters finding out like how they've managed to keep the zombies out. And the noise, you know, the people sort of praising basically the fact that they're going to get into this safe space. <laughs> and then <laughs> behind the wall. Yeah. <laughs> they're attracted to sound, you idiots. Yeah. yeah, there is a little bit of like, what are you doing? <laughs> but, but actually the sequence on the plane as well, Ugh. where, yeah. you know what I mean? And they're building up the pile of suitcases that you know is not going to hold, mm-hmm. sort of thing. I mean, there's, you know, it's, it's a classic action movie that's got its good five big set pieces and then little ones in between but they're all so well done all based on character all build really brilliantly over the course of the film so you obviously I mean you know about the sequel who was going to direct it right oh who oh my gosh oh no don't this is going to disappoint you even more Bob Zemeckis no (laughs) (laughs) so the sequel was going to be directed by David Fincher Oh, gosh. Okay. All right. Little cold sweat. Cold right. sweat. Okay. Yeah. So it was going to be David Fincher. Brad Pitt was coming back. Oh. And, and when you, you just go, David Fincher was going to make a zombie movie. Yeah. And, and the fact that that's what got cancelled. Paramount went $200 is too expensive. And do you know, the, there's a really weird reason why this sequel got cancelled, which is that China has banned zombie movies. Yeah. And because... Such That's a where big... a lot of financing comes from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of the box office would have exactly. come from. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And it's a real shame because I think anything sort of supernatural or anything like that, I think that that market is a bit sort of dubious about it. But not necessarily because there was uh, the, uh, what's it, Train to Be Sung? That, that was oh, a, Train to Busan, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. was a, a zombie movie, but that was South Korea. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, that's a real shame because. Cause, you know, as zombie movies go, it's one of the finest. I I will watch that many, many times and just see different stuff in each one. Do you know about the Matthew Fox thing? No. That, so in, you remember when um, the helicopter comes to get them from the tower block at the beginning? Matthew Fox is in there. So he was supposed to have some major league part in it. He was supposed to have an affair with the wife and all this sort of stuff. And then that story got cut down. And I think it would have, A, probably for time, but also it just adds some ambiguity. to Because she was already, I feel like her character got badly served by this film because she just like, she almost gets him killed by ringing him. And then all she's doing is looking after the kids and gets them kicked off the boat sort of thing. Yeah. So to have her also have an affair would have probably not been a good look yeah, yeah. for that character but yeah so so that was a whole storyline that got cut and I'm, I'm glad that they did actually I'm glad they cut that as yeah. well I'm not glad I mean ugh. I mean, yeah, I agree. Right, what we're going to do yeah. is we're going to call Fincher. We're going to get into <laughs> knock up. You know, he's friends with Brad Pitt, obviously. Knock up a, tra- a, a rough trailer of what that might look oh. like. I'm going to play that on the screen. Will you? But yeah, amazing. Yeah. And uh, and based on that trailer. Paramount will then make the sequel. Huzzah. Right. The next thing we're going to play on the big screen is the moment that makes you literally or metaphorically pump your fist in the 
So the moment that makes me do that is hands down end of the Truman Show when the well it's two two separate moments when the boat gets punctures the edge of the dome that he's in but then when he's and in case I don't see you and he walks through the door and yeah it's just a beautiful moment it's a it's a great moment isn't it it's where um who is it Christoph the director yeah. <clears throat> played by Ed Harris is has gone kind of mad he's like literally trying to kill him fuming at him yeah. yeah it's almost like well he believes he owns him I guess he's like he's studio property he's not even really a person yeah I love I love that movie. And I, I think I don't know whether it was the same for you, but that was the first time I saw a Jim Carrey movie, and I was like, "Oh wow, this guy isn't just you know the rubber faced, the mask, and yeah. all the rest of it. He can he can do. He's dramatic. got some chops, that fella. Yeah. And what was really lovely about it is that because I, I watched it again recently, is even though it is essentially a dramatic film, he uses all his comedic skills, but it's all in keeping. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't become an Ace Ventura type thing, but yeah, all the sort of rubber face stuff and his, you know, his mannerisms and stuff like that become part of Truman anyway. So, so nothing is really compromised by him taking on like a dramatic role. It's just, he's really brilliant in it. Right then, we're playing the very end of the Truman Show on the big screen. Next up, we're going to play what you consider cinema's most shocking moment. All right, so um, years ago, a film came out, I, I don't know who the director is, called Happiness. Yeah. Seen it? Uh, no, I, I have read about it and I, I chose not to watch it yes. based on the description. Now, you know, that's that that's... That's a bit of a big swing because you really should experience all kinds of movies. But I read it and I was like, I just don't, I don't, I don't want to watch it. Yes. And had I read the reviews beforehand, I probably would have chosen the same thing. And it's not, look, this isn't like a, a qualitative statement about it. I don't know whether the film is any good or not. I just remember just coming, because I went with my then boyfriend and we were just like, all right, nice Sunday night film. What should we go and watch? Happiness. That looks good. In we pop. Out we come. Two hours later, traumatised because it's... I mean, it depicts a guy who is a paedophile trying to sort of drug this kid that he's, he's his son's friend, I think it is. Yeah, and yeah. he he takes a shine to him and, and, and that sort of goes wrong. And then there's a bit where these kids are learning to masturbate and something ends up on and a dog licks it. And, and it's an. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and so we we went to see that looking for basically Indiana Jones. <laughs> And <laughs> I can't believe you didn't know what it was when you went to see it. We went, just happiness. literally went on the title. We went, what could possibly go wrong if you oh go and see God. a movie called Happiness? But I, I like doing that. I like going and not knowing. I'll go and see theatre shows. I'll go and see movies. I don't know what it's about. I know very little. Yeah. And usually, in fact, 99% of the time, that works out just perfect. Uh -huh. In fact, to the point where I went to see Terminator 2, I didn't know that Arnie was the, the good guy. Oh my God. And so that was a brilliant reveal for me. Right. That's the time when it went right. So you roll the <laughs> dice with this. I, I understand yes. what you're saying because so many, you know, I, I've, I've heard this before. Like we're all so overexposed when it comes to movies, trailers, all the marketing, everything. Yeah. It is exciting to walk into a cinema and not know a thing about what you're watching. Yeah. Unless it's about <laughs> a paedophile. Yeah. And, and, you know, the weird thing about the film is that it it's sort of, 
darkly comedic mm. that he's trying to figure out how he's going to drug this kid and stuff like that. And to this day, I don't really know what the film was saying because I, I do think it's important that a film is saying something. I don't know what that film was saying because <laughs> my takeaway from it was how sort of bleak-eyed we were <laughs> when we sort of came out of the cinema going, what just happened to us? <laughs> I am not experiencing happiness. No, now. exactly. Yep. I was missold. <laughs> is there a sort of equivalent of a PPE, a P- <laughs> PPI um, sort of like, I was missold this movie. <laughs> All right, next up, we're going to play through the Dolby Atmos speakers. Yes. The line or piece of dialogue from a movie that most affected you? Oh, I'm going to say, well, we've talked about this already, but the um, America the America Ferreira speech in Barbie, we, you know, I, it's, so, it's so well done and it's perfect in that moment. And, and then when Barbie, as I've already said, when she goes on to actually choose the real world anyways, it's just like, wow, that that makes a double impact of that speech. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's a wonderful moment. I think that speech is great. I do feel a little bit like perhaps the her, no, Barbie's great. I felt like the, the mother-daughter story was maybe a little underserved compared to everything else that was going on in that yeah, movie. Yeah, possibly. Especially the daughter. She sort of, she begins as this like, screw Barbie, you're a fascist. And <laughs> then and then you never really sort of have a, there's no, there's no pivotal moment where I think she sort of then does the switcheroo and sort of sees it. And you get that realisation of like, oh, she's seen something. Perhaps. That's really true. That movie sucks. Let me pick something else. <laughs> no, no, I think that's a good. You're I, right. Yeah, no, it, no, yeah. No, the speech, the speech itself, though, is is wonderful. Yeah, but you are right. I think actually, and maybe this was already in it and got cut or something. But yeah, to see what it is like for a, a woman her age or young woman her age, what being a what what being a woman means to somebody her age would have been really interesting, actually. But I mean, yeah, there's only so much. You can get into You've got a, to have a the film, can't you? Song and dance number. Yeah. Well, exactly. You don't want to compromise that. <laughs> Heaven forbid we miss out on another Gosling number right? after his Disney days. Right. So. I think it might be my favourite Ryan Gosling performance of all time. He is just magnificent in that film. He's really funny, mm-hmm. and I, I don't want to sound surprised as surprised as I do, <laughs> but like he's just br- because it's all it's not mugging or anything like that. He's no. he's obviously so steeped in the character. What do you think is going to happen around Oscar time? I I am so, so fascinated because on paper it's like he's playing a doll, yeah. a, a human incarnation of a doll, and it's a comedy and like yeah. both those things, Oscar, like you, you think, they won't, they won't do it. But at the same time, the Oscars needs to start recognising more popular yeah. movies as opposed to... You know, 100%. I mean, back in the day, Titanic right. won Oscars. So, like, why is it now that it's only sort of indie films that have only been seen by four and a half people? So, it, and it's not, it's a balance. It's like recognized all types of cinema. Just because it was popular doesn't mean it wasn't good. I think, you know, I think there's every chance we'll see a lot of Barbie nominations. I hope so. Mm. I hope so. I think it deserves it. Uh, right. One final question mm. before we. Play the movie you have picked for us tonight. What is the best use of music in a movie? Um, I'm going to say pretty much every Disney song ever. <laughs> so you know that I, ha- I think, I think you said before we began. You know, Disney and Disney songs, especially animated Disney musicals. Yes, bit of a blind spot for me. So <laughs> right, I, just give me, give me a taste of if I was going to go straight on YouTube. When we finish this interview, what are the top three? What are your top three? Disney? Okay, I'm not putting these in any particular order because how can you? Um, but 
I'm going to say Under the Sea. Oh, right, that one I know. Oh, my Actually, gosh. I like that one. That is the one Disney song I'm like, oh, I could just stick that They're on. all yeah. as good as that. I, that's all I need to say. They're all as good as that. Well, not all, actually. Um, okay, Under the Sea. Um, I think something from The Lion King. I just can't wait to be king, probably. Okay. And then from... Oh, um, I don't know what it's called, but in Aladdin, where he is sort of introduced a character and he starts thieving and, and stuff. Um, wonder, I bet I'm not allowed to sing any Disney on your thingy, am I? You, you but we're can. talking about yeah, it. So can, essentially, we're, yeah, we're criticising yeah. it. So therefore, it's, it's, yeah. free licence, free use. Fair deal. Fair deal, that's yeah. it. Um, and then um, I'm going to say one more. Beauty and the Beast. Two more, actually. Beauty and the Beast, uh -huh. actually, in Beauty and the Beast. And also Be Our Guest is another amazing... You know what it is about Disney songs? This is why I really love them, is because a lot of them have come from fairy tales, and obviously fairy tales have lots of deep meaning in them, and I think Disney manages to get them into their songs. Again, this is a thing that could be open to interpretation, but I think they managed to put lots of layers in the songs. And just on a, on a musical level, they scan so brilliantly. There's no cramming words in to make them fit into one. <laughs> do you know what I mean? They always fit perfectly. And the um, musical progression in them is always so interesting and innovative and satisfying as a listener. So you know what they're doing, but it still takes you by surprise when they do it kind of thing. That's why I think they're such great songs. We can only play one. Can we? Because I'm in the auditorium with you. Yeah. Can, can we listen to Under the Sea again? Yeah. Thanks very much. Yes. <laughs> all right. We're playing Under the Sea, but we are worshipping at the altar of all Disney songs. And that is the final thing we need to do before this moment. It is now time to announce to this excited audience in this packed auditorium and Robert Zemeckis, the movie out of all others you have chosen to screen for us tonight. What are we watching, Andy? We are watching The Shawshank Redemption. And I just want to say, sorry, Bob, that it's not one of your movies. <laughs> <laughs> so The Shawshank Redemption. Um, tell me about your experience when you first watched it and what it means to you. So I am not sure I watched it in the cinema. And I think that's pertinent because not a lot of people did. So, you know, The Shawshank Redemption was not a hit. People, I guess, didn't know what to make of it or what to do with it. Yeah. And so it became this kind of sleeper hit. So I don't remember the first time I saw it, but I know for a fact that anytime I'm watching TV or something, flaking channels, it comes on, I cannot go to bed. It is one of those movies. And I and I know it pretty comprehensively now. I like I like rewatching films a lot. And um, I've seen Shawshank Redemption probably 20, 30 times or something. I've watched it a lot. Gets me every time when, you know... Um, Red walks across the beach to oh. his old friend Andy Dufresne. <laughs> At the end, the, the end of yeah. the beach, it's and the camera pulls out and he's just there building the boats yeah. and you're like, oh. and it's like, and you know what it is is like this is one of those films where it's the the crafting of it, the foreshadowing of stuff is so well done. So like where we and, and it leads us when foreshadowing is done really well it leads us in one path we think Andy's going to kill himself we think he's like so you know he's gotten so into despair with this situation he's going to kill himself and actually years and years and years of chipping away at this soft rock behind the Raquel Wells poster <laughs> or whatever I mean it's just so beautiful and and it's really a story about hope that's that's essentially what it is and the slow drip drip of hope is that you know do you know what I mean like that's 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 going to sustain a man for 20, 30 years or whatever until 
until his moment where he crawls through shit and comes up the other side. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's a. It's an absolutely fantastic movie and a great movie to screen for us to end this trip to the movies. But before you go, as the audience mm. are milling out, the curtains have closed. They're thanking you for taking them on a wonderful trip to the movies. But before you get to go. It's time for this week's mystery question as we ask, oh. what's in the box? I saw you with the box. What was in the box? Oh, what's in the box? Okay. Okay. So you're, oh, okay. You are actually opening a box. I like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. fully immersive. <laughs> fully immersive podcast. You'll be able to see that on YouTube, guys. <laughs> <laughs> right. So your mystery question is, okay, having appeared in a superhero movie in Shazam, if you could play any superhero in a future upcoming movie, who would you play? Is this an existing superhero? Unless you've got one that you've made up that you want to pitch, that you ah. can pitch. But if there is a superhero that you'd like to play. Give me some give me some ideas. Like what what's out there? Supergirl, Spider Woman. Uh, oh <laughs> Spider Woman. Yeah. I like Spider Woman. Right, I, I I I saw this um brilliant clip of like these Nigerian lads uh, dressed up as, as superheroes and they were singing the Spider-Man theme tune, but like with the talking drums and something and stuff like that. It was so good. <laughs> and I can't stop watching this clip. Spider-Man, Spider-Man <laughs> does whatever a spider can with the talking do 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 do. So yeah, I'm gonna be Spider Woman and I'm gonna to dress up like those guys and sing the song. I love it. I love it. Andy, that is it. Your taxi has arrived to ferry you back to reality. But before you go, let's recap your perfect night out at the cinema. You are going with Robert Zemeckis because you want him to explain the thinking behind the journey of Tom Hanks in Castaway. You're going with Robert Zemeckis at 7 o'clock. You're sitting in the middle of the middle because trigonometry dictates that is the perfect place to watch the cinema screen. You are having a mixed popcorn because I, I twisted your arm and forced you to but you don't really want anything at all from the snack stands in the foyer. We're putting up a poster in the corridor that depicts your fondest movie memory which is what and crying and not knowing why. Your worst movie memory is witnessing The Matrix Resurrections. Your movie poster that depicts the last performance that brought you to tears. Numerous moments, numerous moments, Barbie. And the poster that depicts your unpopular movie opinion. The trilogy, The Matrix trilogy, is amazing. Ignoring The Matrix Resurrections. Okay, we're playing a trailer for World War Z2, the un, unfinished, uh, possibly unmade David Fincher movie. Uh, the movie that makes uh, the movie moment that makes you pump your fist in the air, the end of the Truman Show, cinema's most shocking moment. Witnessing happiness without knowing what you were going to see. The piece of dialogue or line from a movie, America Ferreira's speech in Barbie. The best use of music, Under the Sea, but Disney songs in general, and the final thing for screening the Shawshank Redemption. Andy, that is your trip to the movies. Have you had a good time? I have had a lovely time. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And as Andy's cab carries her away from our virtual cinema off into the distance back to reality, we must all leave 
her movie paradise. But to soften the blow, how would you like a pair of tickets for a night out at a very real Odeon cinema? Each week we give away a pair to someone who leaves us a review of the show on Apple Podcasts. It's that simple. So jump on there and leave us a review and if I read it out we will send you some tickets. The competition is only open to UK residents and the tickets exclude Odeon Leicester Square and Odeon Lux. And just before I say my final farewell for this episode, don't forget you can find the full video for today's Andy Osho interview and indeed for every guest on our Trip to the Movies YouTube channel. So please head over there and as I said at the start, please help us grow the podcast by hitting subscribe. And that really is it. I'll be back next week when another guest fills our cinema with their celluloid dreams as they take us on a trip to the movies. Bye-bye.